Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and we are delighted that you've joined us today for a conversation with one of our most distinguished alumni, the Reverend Dr. Ralph Douglas West. Kristen will introduce Dr. West in just a moment. Before she does, though, let me say how grateful we are for his ministry in Houston and his ministry here at Beeson. Dr. West is a member of the Beeson Advisory Board. He's co-chairing our Dr. Robert Smith Jr. Student Scholarship Steering Committee, and he preached yet again in Beeson's chapel service this morning. We can't wait to share him with you what a blessing it is to serve the Lord with you, Dr. West. Kristen, would you please let those few listeners who don't know who Dr. West is in on why this is such a special recording? I will. Hello, everybody. We are so glad to have the Reverend Dr. Ralph West with us today. He is the founding pastor of the Church Without Walls in Houston, Texas, and we are proud to say he is a demon graduate of Beeson Divinity School. He's also married to Sharetta and Dr. West. I'm going to stop there and allow you to say much more about your wife, your family, your church, and about yourself. But let me just say to you, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. We're glad you're here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good to be home. Well, let's begin really with just your spiritual journey. What led you to faith in Jesus Christ and what led you into pastoral ministry? Well, I was a Christian before I was a Christian, you know. <laughs> I just learned how to say that today in reflecting over that question. And what I mean by that, I'm, I'm like most people. I went to church as a baby, was born in the church, baptized in the church, but came to know a personal faith in Jesus Christ at 15. And that was a result, actually, of observing the lifestyle of somebody who became my best friend, Rufus Duran Smith. He passed his Hope Presbyterian Church now, the largest Presbyterian church in North America, multicultural church. Nobody could do that but him. And I can remember uh, on my knees saying, whatever Rufus got, Lord, give me that. That was my prayer of salvation, actually. And my calling is interesting of talking about leading in the pastoral ministry. I always ask and have to qualify when people listen. And keep in mind, when I started my journey preaching 45 years ago in the African-American tradition, it was only one option, uh, and that was preaching led to pastor. We knew nothing about youth ministry, children's ministry, high school, middle school, (laughs) teaching ministry. That, That was out, you know. It was either you're pastoring or you're not. Thankfully, it has changed uh, since then. But I also felt uh, not because it was a traditional obligation. I actually felt as a young man in college that pastoral ministry would probably be the route that I would go. I always wanted to teach, but I felt that my gifts would probably lead me more to the preaching ministry, the pastoral ministry. And uh, and while I was in college, under one of my pastors who really taught me what it means to have a shepherd heart. So it's kind of my journey in the pastoral ministry. 
Dr. West, when I introduced you this morning in chapel, I alluded briefly to the story of the Church Without Walls. I think that's such a fascinating yeah. story, such an encouraging story to all kinds of people, church planners, people who love you know, the advance of the yeah. gospel around the world. Could you share a little bit with our listeners in more detail than I was able to give them when I introduced you? Yeah, like most births, it was birth out of a travail. The picture that comes to mind uh, this afternoon is uh, Moses leading God's people, and they get to the Red Sea on impasse, and they have one or two or three options. They can move forward, stand still, or go back. And uh, 33 years ago, I was called to a church, uh, maybe a little longer than 37 years ago, called to a church where it was an older church, a historic church in our city, and uh, it was in a prime area called Independent Heights. And I was very young as a pastor and uh, probably had more grit and girth than I needed as a pastor, you know, and I wanted to move forward. And it was evident that I think that they would move forward. They just, I can say it this way now, that, that they could move forward. I didn't know how to be patient to wait for them to catch up with a vision. And uh, for you know, those who are pastoring, you know, I, I would say that, you know, it doesn't always mean that people won't follow you. It takes time for people to cross the Red Sea. It's always somebody saying, let's go back. It's better than. They know that's not the truth. It's just the, the, the familiarity of the past catches up with them and the uncertainty of the future poses real problems. And so uh, I felt that it was time for us to go in different directions. I certainly want to go forward. Now, I look like when you hear the story of our church, I come across as a person who's a strategic thinker. I'm not. I mean, I, I, think, I think out of the creative side of my brain, period, I have to rely heavily on people who are very mechanical and technical and, and tangent. I have to, if I don't have that kind of person who can put their hands on it, I, I can't do it. I can vision, but I lack what it takes to, you know, write down, spell it out, detail it. <clears throat> so it looks like when the review, you look in the review mirror and say, look at these moves. Well, every move in my, every move in those early years was nothing short of a supernatural intervention to move into an area where there were no churches. The city hadn't moved out in Northwest Houston. We're still one of the few churches out there. And I had no idea when I planted the church that 75% of my members lived in that area that I, growing up in the city, never even drove out to. I didn't, I didn't want to go into that area. I didn't know anything about it. It turned out every move to be the right move. And so, um, there was several factors, you know, that go into it. One, of course, the blessings of God. Another one was timing. I was, I'm a native Houstonian, and I had great grace with a lot of the uh, church fathers in that city. And I planted my church at a time, too, where people didn't leave that church to come to your church because you were the new flavor on the block. So what they did, they had our city was growing so fast, they would tell people there's a church out there where you are. And so they would, people would just come to our church. So uh, for years, I think more than 55, I know 60% of our church were not from Texas. They certainly weren't from Houston. The number was higher than that at one time. And it's, uh, it's probably still like that. 
And so uh, we had great, I mean, just great grace, favor and grace from the church fathers, proper time and blessing of God. And then it, then it was also a time, you remember, church growth became the big topic that was going on. This is in the late 80s, the 90s. See Peter Wagner and McGavin with the hot items, and he's talking about his third wave and charismatic effect that it had upon churches at that time. Though we were not on the wave, the mist, the mist was certainly uh, spreading in our face. So our church was kind of, you know, cutting edge because you're young and you're a seminarian. You're bringing on now young men and women involved in staff ministry, even though, bless their hearts, you couldn't pay them. That, they, they, you, but you had the vision, you know, this person is over children. This person is over youth. This is over high school, middle school. And then I had a great relationship with um uh, seminary professors, and I would just bring them down periodically, and they would uh, help shape and teach my Christian education, my discipleship, help me disciple the men and women that I had. And then that was a big time where they had this thing, these big discipleship program, 13 weeks that had just really come out. They were getting big, and we were heavy into that. We We had so many people involved in those Bible studies that we today can determine who the longest members are, are the people who've been there the longest by the Bible they carry. If they have the old discipleship Bible and it's green, then we know that they've been with us, you know, since 1990, 91, 92, that kind of thing. If they got leather on the back of it, we say that's a newcomer. That's somebody that showed up at 2000 and something like that, you know. And it has been nothing short of a miraculous journey. It's been a lot of fun because it started with just a handful of people, about 32 people. And it started in my wife's grandfather's house where we had our first meeting. And from there, we had our first church service and it was at the Brook Hollow Marriott Hotel. My first baptism was in the swimming pool. And by the way, we, we didn't do this to try to be, oh, they're young, radical, and trying to be different. My brain doesn't function like that. We, we, people were uniting, folk were confessing Christ, and we needed to baptize. So we just asked the people at the hotel, you know, if it's okay, if nobody's in the pool, that we could just have it for this time, we'll baptize them and get them right out, you know. So we weren't, we weren't trying to make a statement. We were, we were trying to get coverage where, oh, they're baptizing this new church. We didn't do any of that. We, we just tried to accommodate based off of what, what the needs were. So, and I, and I really believe that that kind of innocence that we had is uh, some of the reason why God was able to bless the church. I mean, it had, and, and that was another thing. We, we were very clear in the early years not to confuse marketing with evangelism. That's another term, you know, became real big in uh, the church growth movement. We said evangelism, but what we really started doing was marketing the church to attract other people from churches to come to our church. And as a result, that's what we call evangelism today. The average church doesn't grow, you know. Leonard Sweet does a great critique on that when he talks about uh, what church growth looked like in America, you know. You know, 25%, you know, 75% of the church in America died. 25% are growing, and the 25% that's growing is growing because it's killing the 75% that's died. So the reality is most, most of these churches, when you look up and you say, how many baptisms and how many confessions of Christ? And they almost have none. 
And so, you know, uh, 30 some odd years ago, you could, you know, you had one-on-one evangelism that CWT, you had four spiritual laws, the spirit field, spiritual, uh, what is, spirit field life. You had Billy Graham's thing, all of that. And you, one-on-one evangelism they had. Now I think the statistic is it takes like 33, 34, 35 people in a congregation to win one person to Christ. But I still hold to that the Lord saves. And, and I'm really trying to lead my church to stay on that to say, we don't want other people members. You know, we, we just don't want them. We understand people transition up, but I mean, let it be a real transition. Like we move on the other side of Houston. If you know the terrain of Houston, you, you can't be on the other side of Houston to take you an hour to get to the other side. And I can understand when people say they want to be close in, but I'm not talking about, but, but that's not normally not the case. Because people, even in those situations, typically don't, they, they stay where they are. People are just looking for entertainment, theology, feel good. But I'm, I'm on my soapbox now. But I really do advocate for evangelism. I mean, just people who confess Jesus and follow him as a disciple. I, I really hold it. Well, the Lord has really blessed you and your ministry growing the church from an initial 32 people to what is now um, three campuses today. And um, the Church Without Walls has such a vibrant ministry. I wonder if you can share with our listeners, um, give them an inside look into pastoral ministry. Um, my dad is a, ba- a Baptist pastor. And so as a daughter of a pastor, I kind of know the inside world of of a pastor's life, but there are many listening who do not. So I'm wondering if you can share about pastoral ministry. And in particular, I know that there are particular challenges to um, leading a large church. Um, So what would some of those challenges be and um, what um, has pastoral ministry looked like for you? Pastoral ministry for me, for me in a large church, looks like the partnership of a lot of people doing a lot of things. Again, I grew I grew up where the pastor was the solo. And um, and so those that are listening and you say what what I, I keep this kind of back and forth is because things are so different today than they were then and when I started. When I began, if you could just preach that guarantee you was gonna grow a church, that's not the truth anymore now. And when I speak of growing a church, I'm not talking about new merits. I'm talking about health. How do you have a healthy church? So one of the things, I mean, early on, the first sermon series I preached in my church was the first 12 chapters from the book of Acts. Now, by the way, I had never preached a uh, a series of sermons. I never heard anybody preach a series of sermons. Well, I heard one person who had preached a series of sermons. But I, never, I, I, I didn't have a clue of how you do it. But what I did know is the first chapters dealt with the church in her infancy. So I was trying to just draw principles from the church when she started and say, church, we need to do these things. You know, we need to witness. We want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness in the world. Uh, you know, we want to preach in his name. We want to lead men and women to repentance. Uh, you know, we, we want to care for the people who are not all that kind of stuff. And uh, I didn't do a good job on the preaching at all, uh, but I was trying to pass it down to the people to say, you know, th- this is what we're trying to do. Because this is not the background that I've come out of either. I come out of very strong preaching background, but that's not the that's not 
kind of background that kind of struck. So um, that that was kind of where I wanted to go. But the big thing that dr- would, would be my driving force, I would say to the church, I don't want to happen to us what I've seen happen throughout church history. You have a prominent pastor or influential pastor grow the church, and then when he dies, the church dies. And I had seen that all my life. And I, I didn't want that. And I started working hard at that. Is to say, and if I must, and if I become a solo pastor, I'm telling you, I say, because I'm not going to be 27, 28 years old forever. I'm not going to be 38 and 48 forever. I'm going to age. And if we're not growing in maturity, then it won't be any way that we'll be able to sustain a healthy growth. So, so let me, let me answer the question. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a preacher. So, you know, it takes me a little time to warm up to get where I'm going. So it looks like pastoral ministry for me in our setting. And I like to say things like that for me, because again, I know pastors who have significant ministries and they use that ministry as a template. And then people run off and try to imitate it, tear up their church and get in all kind of trouble. So for me, I rely heavily on support. Now that's how I do it. For instance, pastoral care. James Harris is the pastor of pastoral care. And what that man does with pastoral care is unbelievable. I couldn't do it. There's no way in the world I could care for those people without him. And he cares for them. And he's developed a team of people and have discipled them to help care for those people. Our deacon family ministry, that's what we call it. We put the deacons where they're supposed to be. Care for the congregation. We put families under mature believers who can pray and care for those people. And they're held responsible and accountable. You have to do this. You know, you have, you got to call them. So that's the, so that's the first thing. A lot of people. And, and those lot of peoples, <laughs> those lot of peoples, <laughs> Is in every area like that. So with youth, I mean, Tyrone leads the youth. Tyrone is a ex NFL ball player for the 49ers. And he's asked every year to join some NFL team to be the defensive coordinator. And I've, I asked him to do it so that we could go hang out at the games, you know. Frisco always will, but he won't do it. He will not do it. And he's built a team to work with those youth. Rosalind with the children. Sharita, Mrs. West, Sister West, with the women. You know, and then the different uh, groups in the women's ministry. So pastoral ministry looks like for me that if, if I didn't have those tentacles, pastoral tentacles, caregivers, supporters, reaching out in the congregation. I couldn't get anything done. It's what actually affords me the ability to preach, you see, and to teach. And and I'm backing up on that even now. So now it's looking at, I haven't even announced it's church, but they'll get it soon. Uh, We've been rebuilding and building our preaching team. And so I'm moving my preaching schedule down to like 55% maybe 60%, and the other 30% will be for, you know, the preaching team 
along with maybe 10%, you know, for we have guests coming in and things like that, uh, special services. But, but to move back, to give myself time in these last years to redevelop leaders, redo, and then develop new leaders, and then bring on that preaching team, people who can be, uh, you know, next generation kind of people who can talk to the next generation. Because the Lord has still given me a great appeal to attract young people. So while that's happening, I want to put somebody down that we can start preparing for the next generation, you know. So, so it, pastoral ministry in a large context for me looks like a lot of people. Well, it looks like Ephesians 4. That's what it looks like. It looks like equipping people to do the work of the ministry. What about during COVID, Dr. West? I've been in a lot of conversations with pastors recently about how their churches are dealing with COVID and was in one today. And, you know, a lot of people in the media are speculating as to where we're going to be a year from now. And is it going to be possible for our churches to return to the way they were before COVID? How have things been at Church Without Walls? How have you navigated the, the COVID epidemic? And, and what are your plans for yeah. coming out the other side of COVID? That's a great question. Well, one, one advantage we had is that we were already wired and geared for media. I'd already moved to do staff meetings the way we're meeting now. What's funny, when I was meeting one year ago, we were on Skype. <laughs> now everything is Zoom, you know. So, uh, so we were already kind of geared up for that part, absent the building being empty. So COVID has been interesting. It really has. My initial days, March, April, was the same. It didn't bother me much. I, I'd laugh because, you know, the cathedral was empty. I didn't pay much attention because I just knew we would be back, you know, at eight weeks, 12 weeks. So, I mean, I can put up with eight, 12 weeks of a major inconvenience. I say, you know, everybody take a, a hiatus for a few weeks. Had no idea when we got to uh, May, June, that because uh, we, we were meeting with epidemiologists in the CDC at a meeting every Monday, one of the young ladies in our church who, on that team was keeping us informed. And when they started talking about it's a possibility, we won't get back to September. It, it wasn't alarming, but I said, this is different. And then in June, it pushes back. You might not be back in church for the new year. Well, leading up to that, we had already began to say, we need to make some adjustments, some real, real adjustments, you know. And so we made those adjustments because even when we started cutting back with 10 people there, that's namely sound, lights, maybe an instrumentalist, praise team, people were contracting COVID. So, so we had on three occasions where the instrumentalists contracted COVID, then you had people that was on the praise team. So we don't know where it is. Is it on the surface? Is it on the air? One thing we know, we didn't, we never downplayed the, the reality and the significance of it. Firsthand, we just learned this is a mysterious virus that we need to be careful about and very, very careful about. And then, of course, we had people in our congregation that contracted COVID and died. So it altered everything, how we did funerals. Uh, and that became a big issue because initially we were not doing funerals, but then you know, we, we just have to knuckle down and say, we got to take every precaution we can 
these people cannot build the cathedral, build the church, be in God's kingdom in his service, and we can't send them home from home, and they can't even be around their family, you know. So we started taking precautions, working with different uh, funeral homes and, and doing that. And then, and then, Pastor, okay, here we go. And now you have to minister to the people because you can't get to the hospital. So we have a good working relationship with the chaplains. And then we had it with the nurses, but they were overwhelmed. They couldn't do anything. You know, they, they, on one hand, they're trying to admit, they're trying to care for, and now they quarantined. It, it just became, it became a mess, you know. Things seem to be quieting down somewhat now. <clears throat> so, uh, so we experienced the same thing, I guess, that a lot of other churches did at that level. Now, how do we go back? We don't know. I'm vaccinated. My staff is vaccinated, at least 90% of them all. Uh, I think that our, our deacon family ministry people, most of them are vaccinated. And so we wanted to start saying, well, maybe we can incrementally start moving people back in because you can get a lot of people in the cathedral and spread them out, you know. Soon as we start planning, now we're still planning that right now, but with these new strands that's coming out. So, you know, People nervous, you know, everybody you know, nervous. It's affected preaching in a major way because normally, you know, I, I pride myself in, in a, I don't know if you could humbly pride myself, you know, in preparing weeks and weeks, you know, at least 12 to uh, 13 weeks at a time, three months, four months at a time. That's been difficult to do because now, Every so many weeks, something new comes up where you're encouraging, you're saying, trust God, have faith, rely on his providence. God will take care of you, you know. So so it's almost cyclic. The things become cyclical where you're saying, okay, I'm on comfort over here, encouragement over here, patience over here, anxiety here, fret not here, don't worry there. I was just getting ready to start trying to cast a, uh, a sermon series for the, and I said, that's not going to work right now. Not with what's going on because every time, everything's along. And then, then you add not just to the ecclesiological issue, you can't overlook what's happening socially and culturally in America. So that becomes a major issue, you know, and, and what are the fallouts of that going to be? What's the repercussions? So, uh, but, 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 but it's a great time to be alive. You know, Father, you said the living of these days. I tell them it's a great time to be alive, you know, because, because if, if you have to pray more and trust more than I think you ever have in our era of, uh, Christianity in America. I mean, you really have to pray and trust right now. Dr. West, I said at the beginning that we are proud that you are part of our alumni and that you received your doctor of ministry degree from Beeson in 2004. And I'd love to just hear about your relationship to our school, what led you to Beeson and how your time at Beeson has shaped uh, you and your preaching and pastoral ministry and and also just your friendships that you've developed here over the years with Dr. Smith and so many others. Um, so could you uh, share with our listeners about your relationship with Beeson? I'd be glad to. I was in Mobile, Alabama, preaching for Julia Shrugs 
at First Baptist. He used to be the uh, president of the National Baptist uh, Convention USA Incorporated. He was not that at that time. I was just invited down to preach for him. And those are days where you had the old leadership magazine. So I'm thumbing through, and I, I, I keep seeing Beeson. I see this dome and Beeson. I'd never heard of Samford. I later found out that a friend of mine who passes in Miami went to Howard uh, University before it became Samford. And and so uh, I said, oh, okay, this is the school he's always, because he always talked about his school. And I just said, man, it's a pretty campus because I hadn't heard of it. I didn't, I'm, I'm still young at this point. I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know that you didn't have, I didn't know that they had a school like that in Birmingham, right? I mean, it's not road tied. So I'm in the car looking through leadership and I see Dr. Massey in, in there. Massey taught me preaching at Princeton when I was doing a, a class there. So I said, Oh, I said, man, Dr. Massey is, uh, I said, well, let's go. Cause I knew if he teaching or preaching there, it's a real place. I know, I know it's a real place. If mass is there. I drive down, I ride up on the campus and, and I, and I'm floored. I'm like, this is one beautiful place. You know, I'm like, man, this, this never seen it. So, um, I, I, I left it alone. And then I, I kept saying, I need to go do some more studies and this kind of thing. Then I saw that Beeson launches a, uh, the men program, but they have an emphasis on preaching because what I, well, anyway, that, that it, it has an emphasis on preaching. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to do something in preaching. Well, at the same time, when I'm uh, uh, enrolling, Robert Smith's here. Now, I don't know Bob well at this time, but I heard him uh, when we was at um, Glorietta. And I said, man, this brother's waxing eloquent. You know, he's he's doing his thing, you know. And then and then Calvin Miller was here. And uh, Calvin, that, that was my main man, you know. So I said, man, this, this place has some substance to it, you know? And then I knew of Dean George and, and then, and then got to know Frank Thiel and Ken Matthews and all this group. So I said, I'm, I'm going there. They accepted me. I got in and Ken Matthews was the first person I sat across the table with. And it was just a great, 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 uh, journey, a great pastoral and academic and scholarly journey. And I wanted to go somewhere where I'd be challenged. And I knew I would with those people. I knew I would at that, that, uh, that I would not be ashamed and I wouldn't make them ashamed. And, uh, over the years, I've just de- developed those relationships with them. You know, I've, I've had a good time. I can go on and on about those friendships, you know. Speaking of Beeson, Dr. West, you know, uh, we try to get you here as often as we possibly can. I'm trying to get you here all the time, speaking into the ministerial formation of our students. All next right. generation of pastors okay. of our churches. And so while we got you on the line, even though it's just a podcast, a lot of students, a lot of ministers going to be listening to this. Yeah. Speak into ministerial formation at Beeson Divinity School for just a few minutes. Um, well, you're, yeah, you're at a great place. I mean, you really, you really, really are at a great place. I don't just say that because I'm an alumni. I, I say that now, wherever I am, it's one of the great places Here's what you get. One, one is you're going to have what I like to call devotional scholarship. That is, you're going to be challenged intellectually by warm-hearted men and women who have a real love for God in the church. 
And, and you're going to need that if you're talking about entering into pastoral ministry. The last thing the church needs as a pastor is not warm-hearted and cold and indifferent to his or her people. That, that, that's the first thing. So you're going to get that warm-hearted, I like to say that, that warm-hearted devotional scholarship. But the other thing that the other thing that you're going to get, you're going to get some great hands-on practical ministry of people that teach it, but they themselves are involved in the church world. That was one of the things that I always enjoyed, uh, whether it was with Calvin Miller or whether with Fishers Humphrey or with Dean George. And, and I used to just have my favorite statement would be when one of them couldn't do something because they were teaching on a Wednesday morning at a Bible study at the church for that class. I, I thought that was incredible. Uh, that shattered every image. I use that for every preacher that believes that they are beyond teaching a class. Tim said, now, when well, you can get Dean George to go teach a Bible study class, not the church-wide study in a class, Calvin Miller, who could go preach anywhere on the planet whenever he wanted to do it, Fishers Humphrey, Mr. Theologian, to teach a class. So so you're going to get that. So you're going to get the intellectual. You're going to get the practical, you know. And then, man, and then using that word formation, your life will be shaped uh, spiritually in that place. That was one of the things I enjoyed, too. Chapel was chapel. And then, of course, the covenant groups that, started developing where people would pray and interact with one another. I, I strongly recommend it. I strongly recommend it. Christian, if I could ask a follow-up of Dr. West here, I know it's your turn to ask a question, but I'm really interested to know, Ralph, if you were here at Beeson all the time and you got to raise up a whole generation of, uh, of pastors, what would be the main things you'd want the young students to know about pastoral ministry and how to be faithful in pastoral ministry in our day today. One is love God, love God. You know, I was asked one time about uh, in a preaching class about preaching. I said, "Well, first of all, you need a Bible." Everybody started laughing. I didn't laugh. I let I let them laugh. I said, uh, "If you find that humorous, then you might need to go check in another class." I said, "The last thing we need is another Bible less." Text less, scripture less, sir. Because if all you're doing is peddling your ideas, your opinions, they won't last. I feel the same way about that in pastoral ministry. Love God. And I mean, I mean, really love God. When when you love God, the vision of God broadens. It gets bigger. It's that scene I think they say about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and he and somebody out. Say, before we retire for the evening, let's just go out into the garden. They stand there, look at the stars and Roosevelt. They turn around and say, we're small enough now. We're small enough. And it's when you look up to the heavens and you're able to sit down and say, we're small enough now. I'm small and God is large. Love God. That'd be the first thing. Second thing I would say is live in the scriptures. Learn to live in the scriptures. Uh, If you're going to do pastoral ministry, let the scriptures shape your pastoral vision. Let it shape your counseling, how you communicate with people. You have mentioned friendships. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I, I've observed in Dr. Massey 
was that he lived in the scriptures. He really lived in the scriptures. I don't know Peter Parrish well, but I met him through Dr. Massey at Princeton and uh, but that before he came, uh, came out to teach. And so Massey and I were, were talking, and I called him dad, you know. Bob would call him dad, you know. That, that's our connection uh, with Dr. Massey. We call him dad. Peter Parrish was there, and uh, Dr. Massey was, he said, you know what he's going to do, Ralph? I said, no, sir. He said, he's going to pray. He said, as long as I've known him from Detroit to now, and from Detroit, he had been from Detroit to Alabama to Anderson, you know, he says, nothing interferes with his time of prayer. I have coveted that forever. Love God, live in the scriptures. You live in the scriptures, give you a big vision of God, and, and it will shape your heart for how you have to go about doing ministry and caring for people, you know. And then I think the last thing I would just simply say is take it serious. Take it serious. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of joy in ministry, you know what I mean? Those of us in ministry, we laugh more than anybody, and we cry more than anybody. And uh, But take it serious. I mean, really, really take it serious. Take it serious. I'll stop there because I could go on and on. Those would be a few things I would say. If you're going to be in it, be in it. It's not a hustle. Be in it. You know, there's, there's not where you come to see where you can make money, get get rich. The Lord will take care of you. Be serious about it. The labor is worth it. You know. And I remember one time I had gone out to preach, and I thought that I was wronged and all that kind of stuff. And my pastor could be rather Solomonic, you know. So I was waiting on him since I'm one of his favorite sons to jump in like, I can't believe that anybody would do this. He never said a word. And when I got through waiting on him to come to my rescue, you know, to say, I'm going to call Reverend so-and-so and say this. All he said to me, he looked at me, he said, I want you to remember two things. Number one, you don't have to go back again if they invite you. And then he said, secondly, God always makes it up on the other end. So that was it. And uh, I'll wait no more, but I've lived on them words. God will make it up on the other end. Yes. Thank you for that pastoral wisdom. Um, we always like to end the show hearing what God is doing and teaching in your life um, as a way of encouraging our listeners. You've already encouraged us so much, but I wonder if you can encourage us a, a bit more and uh, share what has God been teaching you these days? He really has. My son came to me, uh, the youngest one is preaching now, and he was invited by one of his classmates to participate in this service called the Seven Last Words. That's where seven preachers are given one of the last words of Jesus on the cross, and they're supposed to preach on that word for uh, 15 minutes. So uh, he talked to me about it, and I said, it has been a long time since I've you know, just sat down and tried to you know, just look at those words as standalones, and so I had some free time, you know, after going through my ordeals. You know, I was sitting down in front. I said, this will give me a time to do something. You know? So I started reading up on it and everything. And then I said, well, wait a minute. I, I, let me let me, let me, me get an, uh, uh, an audible commentary. So I found some sermons on the seven last words. And I listened to 28 sermons. 
And when I got through listening to him, I knew less about the seven last words that I did when I got started. It was absolute some of the worst preaching that I'd ever heard on the planet. Irresponsible. Uh, it was anthropocentric, humanistic. Everything was about us, you know. And I'm being very serious. And that, that affected me in such a way I asked myself, if I were a brand new Christian, and I needed to know what God had done for me in Jesus Christ. Would I have learned anything after those 28 sermons? And I said, almost nothing. And that moment, I felt a new conviction to study more. Study more. That's what God's teaching me now. You have the gravitas and the influence to be heard. Study more, not for not for information in a sermon, just to be informative. Not for somebody to just sit down and say, oh, he said this. Mm -mm. Study it. It goes back to my whole thing today. The more you study about God, the more you know God. I think that's what theology is. That's why we have have beasts and God. And they go to the more you study about God, you know God. And I want to know him. And that's what the Lord is really uh, shaping in me now. I, I want to know him more. I remember my pastor said that once, and I thought he was a genius. I still do. He's a blessed memory now. And I'll never forget, he was about 58 years old. And then he started crying in the pulpit, I wish I had known more. Mike, you can't teach him anything else. I know exactly what it means now. You get here and you say, hey, you have you haven't. That you you got that much, you, you that that you haven't gone to the depths yet. You haven't gone to the depths. That's Calvin Miller's great sermon on that, uh, on the depths. The book he wrote on that with his grandson going out to the barrier reef, walking miles out. He said miles and miles, and then it just drops off into the deep. He said that that's how we come to God and. And that's why I feel the Lord's leading me. And I said, you've been walking in two feet of water. I just want to know him now and talk about it and love him. Amen. I do too. And I cannot think of a better way to conclude this interview than that. Thank you, Dr. West, for being yes. with us. Listeners, you have been hearing Dr. Ralph West, the founding pastor of the Church Without Walls in Houston, Texas, and a dear friend of Beeson Divinity School. Thank you very much for being with us. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.